Let's pray together. Lord, that's our charge, of course. We want to be faithful, and you've called us to so many privileged places and duties and responsibilities and delights and joys, and we need to think rightly, and so we come to your word prepared. We, we love your voice in the church, your word. We love to be taught and to be teachable, and so soften those hard places, stir up the fallow ground of our inner life and renew us, even as we come to this time of study change us and challenge us, even topple our idolatries and build us up in the truth. And we pray for, for you, our great Savior. Amen. Okay, take your Bibles if you would and let's go back to our study of Luke. We are in chapter 10, but I want you to look back one chapter for a moment this morning just by way of introduction, because I want to remind you of something that had occurred earlier. Remembering back to Luke chapter 9, as Jesus had been on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, and he'd had the, the flesh of his humanity pulled away for a moment, and the glory, the blazing inner life and glorious righteousness of his person came exploding out onto the mountaintop, and in that experience, you recall that when it was all done, they came down from the mountain, and Jesus could see past the massive crowd at the base of the mountain to the disciples that he'd left behind, and they were in a heated debate with some scribes, some Jewish leaders, according to Mark's gospel. And you remember that as Jesus approached, there was this broken-hearted father that rushed up to him. And in verse 38, the father from the crowd shouted to Jesus, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only boy. And a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. And then the father said this, I begged your disciples to cast it out. They could not. The inner circle of Jesus, the top 12, the, the crack squad of the disciples, they couldn't get the demon to come out of the boy. Of course, the Jewish leaders had stomped on that. They'd, they'd really pounced on that reality and used it as, a, as an upper hand in the public debate. They were discrediting the disciples. They wanted to embarrass them in front of the huge crowd because they couldn't heal this father's possessed son. And the failure to invoke the power of God was cause for derision. In fact, it even shocked and disappointed the disciples themselves, according to Matthew 17 and in Mark's account, in Mark 9. And basically the message that the Jewish leaders wanted to send was simply this. Oh, you claim that, he, that your master's the Messiah, but when you go out with his alleged power, nothing happens. 
If you were his top men, you'd be able to imbibe the power that he has and do your job and overcome evil and even heal this boy. You have no real power. And so he must not be the master you claim. Jesus, of course, was frustrated and grieved at the whole situation. Verse 41, he said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you while I'm here? Bring your son here. And of course, he heals him. Later on, Matthew 17 tells us that the disciples came to Jesus and privately they said, we could not drive it out. Why is that? And you remember what Jesus said. He said, because of the littleness of your faith. Literally, he uses the term, your, your faith is impoverished. It's not a rich faith, it's an impoverished faith. Because if you had real faith, through and through, true and pure faith, even in the size of a mustard seed, you could defy what's going on around you and accomplish what appears impossible. And he said, sure, this kind of demon only goes out by righteous living and spiritual disciplines of praying in the Spirit, but you didn't even do that. You didn't even have enough faith to do that. And in that grief-filled response of the Lord, he confronts two things. He confronts the pervasive unbelief of the crowd around them and the minuscule faith of the disciples. They had a fear, a fear of the power of darkness. They, they were sinfully afraid of religious persecution at times. They, they feared the temporal troubles that came into their life. They failed to pray faithfully in faith and in the power of the Spirit. Jesus had to even sober up their thinking and recalibrate it. In verse 44, he says, if you have ears to hear, let this sink into them. Let this sink into your hearts and your minds. I need to recalibrate what you're thinking. Now you fast forward to chapter 10 when Jesus had sent the 70 out and, and you know that the events of the disciples, the 12 disciples at the base of the mountain, their inability to cast out the demon, you know that news of that, news of their inability to face off with the powers of darkness must have spread through the rest of Jesus' disciples like a brush fire. Jesus had given the 12 power and authority over all demons and diseases, chapter 9, verse 1. But somehow, something had gotten wrong along the way. And every other disciple knew that the top 12 guys had somehow become unable to get the job done. And if the 12, just thinking how a disciple would think, if the 12 couldn't successfully face off with evil spirits, how are any of the other disciples going to be able to fare any better? Chapter 10, verse 1, the Lord appointed 70. And according to verse 9, they were sent out with authority and power to heal those who are sick. They had authority and power to heal. I'm assuming that coming along with that might be the power to cast out demons, though Jesus never says that apparently ahead of time. When he sends the 70 out, he says, I give you power to heal the sick. I doubt they would have assumed that was power to cast out demons, although they might have, but ahead of sending them out, they weren't told specifically about any ability to cast out demons. He tells them after the day's events that he'd given them authority over the powers of hell, verse 19 says. 
but not before, at least that we know of. Were they doing a great ministry? Oh, we saw last time they did a great ministry. It, was, it had two functions to it. They went into towns and villages along the Transjordan in a Middle Eastern area where, the, where paganism ruled, where even satanic bondage ruled and false worship ruled and, and vile living ruled in those villages. All east of the Jordan River, all down toward Jerusalem as they headed down, they had a massive ministry of two things, grace and culpability, you remember. Man, when they went into a town or a village, all they looked for was someone who welcomed the truth of the gospel. That means God was pouring out his grace on that family. They used it as a staging point for the rest of the gospel to those pagan villages and cities. Jesus had intended to go there and do some saving work, and they, when they went in, they were the litmus test. If you receive us, you receive Christ, and therefore you receive the Father. If you reject us, you're rejecting Christ, and you reject the Father. They were the fulcrum. They were the line in the sand. Man, it was, a, it was a polarizing job to do. Incredible. Wonderful promises that God would do great things. Amazing, profound promises in that when someone rejected them and therefore Christ and therefore the Father, they were to do a formal rejection of that place saying, God has given you over. They even had insight from Christ in that moment and authority to declare it. You're given over. You, your village, your families, your children, generations, you're given over. Powerful ministry of culpability and accountability because with knowledge came greater responsibility. Now you know. We've told you and you rejected. So if you reject us, you're rejecting Christ and you reject the Father. So we return to this narrative at the time when the 70 disciples are returning. And they're going to give their ministry reports, right? They went out by twos. That's 35 reports coming back to a place that was obviously planned, a planned location. And for a moment, you just have to sort of take a deep breath and imagine what evenings around the fire would have been like as they went out into these devastatingly pagan areas. Things were happening exactly as Jesus had said. Some families were welcoming the gospel. Some homes, perhaps entire villages, were rejecting it. It was a darkness and light ministry. Absolutely clear. There was no toying around with the gospel. There was no seeker-sensitive movement. There was no pragmatics. Straight at it. And the 70 disciples were carrying their gospel ministry work out for their love for their Lord. And as they went, no doubt their passion for the Lord's work grew because they saw the fruit and their spiritual confidence likely grew by the hour. They now knew it's not just the 12. We actually are the Messiah's men. And God is giving fruit and hearts are changing and truth is clear. It's coming out of our mouths with such piercing clarity. We're able to answer questions. Hardened hearts are softened and, heart, and other hearts are hardened and a sense of personal usefulness it would have rushed over them. We are able to do the work of the truth in Christ. You know how that is. Kent Hughes talks about a springtime of ministry. Sometimes in ministry, God gives you a springtime where everything's blooming. 
And, and you, you can't hardly believe it that God would bring someone like that person to your influence. And then over time and prayer, they start to soften. And then you see them soften. And then all of a sudden, there's this breakthrough and their countenance changes. And you ask them what happened. And they say, I don't know. I just started reading the Bible and it, it made sense. And my heart was broken over my sin. And you can't wait to get on your phone and tell someone what God has just done. It blows your mind. And you were used. God was merciful. The 70 couldn't wait to get back to the group and tell what had happened because they knew the others would be blown away. The Lord would be pleased and perhaps their faithfulness would, would hit its stride. Perhaps they'd be mentioned as faithful. Maybe they were even thinking maybe the Lord might call attention to us in the, in the midst of all the others and say what we did. But the question is this. Would the fruit of their ministry become a cause for their disappearance, for their self-denial, for their humility and worship? Or would the fruit of it become a temptation to pride and self-interest? That's, that's what has to happen when God uses the gospel and instruments for the gospel. He is constantly recalibrating what we're celebrating. Let's see what happens. Notice, first of all, if you're keeping notes, their ministry euphoria here. Their ministry Euphoria, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And notice how the text just continues. The Lord said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. They come back and they're full of euphoria. The 70 returned with joy. As I said, there must have been a designated meeting place where they would set up and put a fire up and eat their meals and Preparations were no doubt made for this gathering and they were coming back. The ministry was a success. God had been gracious. They're filled with joy. But notice what is on the forefront of their minds regarding what happened. Notice verse 17. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject 
to us in your name. Now remember, we have no record that Jesus had told them beforehand of any power over demons. And if, as Jesus says to them in verse 19, they had been told ahead of time to cast out demons, I doubt they'd have had any hope that they could pull it off because the 12, they'd watch the super 12 lose their power, lose the authority, the effect, just from a lack of faith. I doubt the 70 had expected anything like that to happen much. So they likely went out with no thought that they'd be confident, facing off with the terrifying supernatural forces of darkness, which were indeed terrifying. What they did to human beings was absolutely brutal. Yet they were ecstatic to report that even the demons are subject to us. The emphasis in the sentence is on the word even. In other words, not only did they see people repent, they not only spoke truth boldly, they not only could command diseases and diseases fled, but demons fled also. This is absolutely on their minds and hearts. They can't believe it. And the power had come properly in Jesus' name. You remember, that's exactly what Jesus said in Luke 9, 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. The person coming must receive Christ and the name of Christ and the message of Christ and the person who's reaching out to them. They come in the name of Christ, you receive them in the name of Christ. And God's work is being accomplished through his representatives. Whoever receives Christ receives him who sent Christ. So they did it in Jesus' name. And and by the way, this isn't some incantation spoken like some spiritual formula in order to access supernatural power. There were dangers of the false religions promoting such a thing and Jesus warns of it in Matthew 7. There will be some who arrive on the judgment and face off with Christ and they will in their folly boast that in Jesus' name when they invoked the name of Jesus supernatural things occurred. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, because you just accessed demonic power. Why? Because you're lawless people. You're lawless ones. You hate the truth. Well, the 70, they loved the truth. They loved Christ. They loved their master. So these weren't charms, incantational charms. They were commanding demons in the authority and power of the Son of God to cease their evil tormenting of sinners and the demons were responding. Why? Because the 70 had welcomed the Savior. They'd welcomed Him and He'd welcomed them and He commissioned them for the gospel. They were walking by faith. They were hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So they were useful vessels to the Master sent out in the Messiah's name. And when that happens... In the lives of God's people, whatever the season of ministry is, whether it was during apostolic times when attendant miraculous power came with the message, or whether it's even in the new covenant time like we have today, when you resist the devil by faith, James 4 says, he must flee. Don't say temptation is too great. It's too great for you in your own power, but don't say that Satan has too much power. He doesn't. He's a defeated foe, and for believers, when you resist him in faith, he runs. He runs. 
And the powers of hell had no choice but to flee the presence of these 70 who'd been sent out. And in fact, verse 18 actually cranks it up a whole nother notch. Verse 18, he said to them, I, Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What a statement. And it's seemingly strange to us. In fact, literally, this is, this is how it would be translated if you expanded it. I was continually beholding Satan like flashes of brightness from heaven falling. All these quick flashes of lightning, flashes of bright light from heaven, Jesus says, I was seeing this and it was Satan and I was continually beholding his person being demoted. This vision that Jesus was having throughout the day's ministry of the 70 as they were taking gospel ministry to the dark forces, Satan was, Jesus says, forcefully collapsing from a higher level of position to a lower one. And you could say that as the 70 were casting out demons, Satan's authority and power were toppling Now, some commentators have suggested this refers to just Jesus thinking about the victory at the cross and his ultimate victory in the coming of his kingdom. And they would cite Revelation 12, verse 9, how Satan and the demons are thrown down out of heaven in that great image, which we will study probably 20 years from now. Just kidding. <laughs> we'll be there a little sooner than that. Some commentators have thought, well, that's what he's referring to. And it's possible that Jesus is seeing all of that, though the text doesn't give us any clear indication. Other commentators suggest that Jesus is referring to what happened in the wilderness when Satan and all the powers and fury of hell came against Jesus in his most vulnerable time, his most desperate time outside of the suffering of the cross. And he was victorious. He believed his father. He gave scripture truth and Satan had to leave. That's also a possible view of what Jesus has in mind. But it seems to me that the only path to those two views is to import all of that data into this one statement from other places in Scripture. I'd just rather deal with Jesus' comment in the immediate context. It's not a lengthy reply, but it seems to be an obvious response to the report about the demons being subjected to the disciples. The demons had to come under our commands. And in fact, the next verse Verse 19, Jesus says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. That's a bold and, and pregnant statement about what Jesus has done to allow the demons now to have, be, have become subject to the commands of the disciples. So let's just sort of tie it together. Here's the simplest way, I think, to understand Jesus' statement about Satan and light flashes coming from heaven. Think about it this way. Jesus had sent them out to do this polarizing gospel ministry, and with intensified focus, they're heading to Jerusalem quickly, and along the way, they're going through these very dark places of the Transjordan, and Satan doesn't like it because Jesus is heading toward the cross faster and faster, more intensified in his focus to get there and do this great redemptive work. And Satan is mentioned here. He is, of course, the ultimate serpent, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. As I said, Revelation 12, verse 9, and Revelation 20, verse 2. 
And his demons are also called serpents and scorpions, Revelation 9, verses 5 and 10. Serpents, snakes, and scorpions. And they were all over that region, holding that region in bondage. That's why there were people that needed demons cast out, because it was held in bondage. People all over the Transjordan had been in false religion, opened their lives up to sin. Satan had a stronghold, it seems, in that area. And by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was going to head down along that east side of the Jordan River and go down through those areas with this great gospel ministry. But Satan would hate it. And Satan was not about to have his work and his sinister plans disrupted by this pitiful band of weaklings that Jesus had sent out on their own. And so Jesus gives the 70 power over all the power of the enemy for successful gospel ministry to this area. And he says, nothing is going to injure you. Well, he certainly could have meant physically. Providentially, I'm going to protect you physically all the way down there. But more importantly, spiritually, your faith won't be crushed. Satan can't smash your, he can't deal with your soul. He can't deal with gospel power. He can't deal with the message. He can't thwart it coming to cities I want to save someone in. And he says, you will tread on the forces of darkness. Continually trample them down. By the way, this is kingdom imagery. You remember I read Psalm 91. You remember Psalm 91 verse 13. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. This is kingdom imagery. When God takes over, when his authority rules and reigns, his people are not threatened by the spiritual forces of wickedness and what they do when they roar. By the way, one chapter over in Luke 11, Jesus uses snakes and scorpions in another very interesting context. Just look over one chapter, and our time is moving, but I can't resist showing you this. Notice when talking about answering prayer, verse 9 of Luke 11, so I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it'll be opened. This is Jesus saying to his disciples, when you believe God, when you pray according to his purposes, he answers prayer. It may not be the timing or the specifics you expected, but it will be for spiritual fruit. It will be. Notice, he mentions the analogy of your pagan life and your pagan family. Verse 11, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He'll not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? He'll not give him, rather than what feeds him, but something that will kill him, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he'll not give him a scorpion, will he? That's interesting. Again, snake and scorpion used just a bit later. These represent, in kingdom language, the idea of evil forces that that attempt to come against God's work over the souls of men. And he's saying to believers, when you pray for souls, when you pray for the impossible, for God to save someone, when you pray for Grace Emmanuel Bible Church to do a work, when you pray for your ministry at work and your testimony to have its inroad, you pray according to the will of God, you walk by faith, God will begin to answer those prayers because you're asking him for what feeds the kingdom. He's not going to give you something that destroys the kingdom. Even though we used to be evil, we knew even in our pagan life not to do that to people that you say you care about. How much more then does your heavenly Father want to give every eternally blessed thing we ask for? 
And so his answers are perfect. The timing and specifics might be different than we imagined, but his desire is to give us what, what will protect and preserve us for eternity. And that's why he says to these men, nothing will injure you. It's not primarily a physical, physical promise because he promised the disciples the same thing, the 12, and yet they were all martyred. What was he promising them that of all the Father gave him, he lost none of them, John 18. It was, he was promising you'll never lose your soul. When I save a soul, it will get to heaven. When I save a life, you don't have to worry about what they do to you physically. You cannot have your faith crushed. You cannot be lost. You cannot be absolutely silenced. Darkness will not overtake the light. Literally, the negatives are piled up in this statement so much so that this is how it would come out. Nothing shall by any means whatsoever ever harm you. <laughs> that would be a, a, an expanded and very literal translation. Their gospel work will not be hindered in any way by the forces of Satan. That means that those who reject Christ's salvation are in serious, serious trouble. Serious trouble because they're culpable and yet God still does his work. In fact, they will continue to tread upon Satan's authority all the way to Jerusalem. And in the new covenant ministry that we're a part of today, the implication is that as we scatter from this place to be gospel light right in the face of a darkening generation, God is promising to use those opportunities to put huge dents in the kingdom of darkness right in the center of empirical Roman rule in the city of Rome, the capital city in the first century was this little tiny church of believers to whom Paul wrote in Romans. And you remember what he said in the 16th chapter, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Wow. So all my life, from here to glory, I can resist the devil and he has to flee. He'll scheme and try to come back at it, but I can resist him in faith and he'll flee. And soon, not only is my belief toppling his authority, not only is every bit of my faithful work in Christ demoting him, but in the future, he'll be utterly crushed under the feet of God's people just as he was defeated at the cross. I love that. So, you can understand their ministry euphoria. They're excited. This stuff happened. Huge stuff. But, their motives need to be examined and tested and recalibrated. Notice verse 20. Nevertheless, do not Rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. Now notice what is happening here. The emphasis is on the demonstrative pronoun, in this. That's why the NAS put it in there. Do not rejoice in this, this particular thing, that the, the spirits are in subjection to you. And notice he left out in my name. He left that out of there. You're rejoicing right now because the spirits are subject to you. And he's not necessarily condemning them as if they've already drifted into some, some error, but what he's saying is, I'm warning you, do not 
let this great joy over how you were used, do not let this euphoria over this great gospel work turn into a cause for seeing yourself as the issue. Jesus knows the human heart. We will take the fruit that God produces and the sovereign plan of God to produce it and we will slot ourselves right into the middle of the significance of it. Our heart does it. And Jesus says, nevertheless, I gave you all this authority, but nevertheless, I gave you all this power, but nevertheless, don't rejoice in this particular thing that spirits are subject to you. What is Jesus warning about here? Delusions of grandeur, manipulation, the tendency to not only take credit, but but to imagine that you were indispensable to the work. And why would they want that? Well, first of all, they're not the 12. Jealousy probably rose up. If it rose up among the 12 about each other, it certainly rose up among the 70 about the 12. It certainly rose up in the hearts of those outside, even the circle of the 70. Oh, Jesus appointed 70. He's sending them out. Well, then what use am I? Oh, God's using me? Well, you see, we're on evil plane, even plane. We're equal. You're not better than me. We have a tendency to pride. We have a tendency to get our minds off souls and onto methods. We have a tendency to think superficially about what God is doing. And we have a tendency to imagine that we're indispensable to his sovereign work. We get in the way. Jesus is recalibrating them. He's saying, don't risk delusions of grandeur here, gentlemen. And you can see what it would have been like. Demons totally racking people with torment and suffering and a human being stands up and says, I command you in the name of Christ to get out of there. It's done. Not the antics that you see on these foolish TV shows where people growl like they're demon-possessed and some guy stands up there with a microphone and a fancy suit and asks for your money while he does his show. Not that. Real demon possession where people are thrown down and violently ripped apart and injured and scarred for life. For generations they had demon possession in some cultures. I'm talking about that. And a human being steps up and says, in the name of Christ, get out. And the person is in their right mind, suddenly resting and at peace and healed. What would you think about yourself? What would you tend to imagine? We just need recalibration. And Jesus gives it to them right here. Don't rejoice in this, this particular reality that spirits are subject to you. And I would have expected Jesus' next line to be, but rejoice that they're subject to me. I gave you the power. (laughs) But he doesn't. Look what he does. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. There's the recalibration. The air comes out of the room. They are yanked up to 50,000 feet of altitude to see a truth here that keeps you from slotting yourself into the wrong idea. Jesus says, look, you are to rejoice that in the sovereign grace of God, your name is recorded in heaven. Your name. 
Oh, you can name some demon by name and it comes out. Don't rejoice that it's subject to you. You're nothing. Your name is recorded in heaven by a sovereign act of God's grace. What is this? Where is my name recorded? Well, you know the references all through Scripture, but it's called by several names. The Lamb's Book, the Lamb's Book of Life, the Book of Life. Revelation 3, verse 5, he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I'll never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. In that verse, the overcomers are clothed in white, which is purity, and our name is acknowledged to God. And so to have your name included, you must be purified as an overcomer. If you've come to Christ and you've been cleansed of your dead works, your name is there. Revelation 21, 27, nothing impure will ever enter heaven, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And if your name isn't written there, Revelation 20, 15, it's an eternal sentence of judgment. You're thrown into the lake of fire. It's created for Satan. It looms eternally, as one writer said, for all those who reject and rebel against God. And it's foretold in the vision, Revelation 13, 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and heaven fled from his presence, Revelation 20 says, and there was no place for them, and I saw the dead and the great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book among the book of the works was opened, which is the book of life. Looking for their name, and your, their works are be te- being tested. Divine books, justice books, holy books, absolutely pure and righteous books. And then the one book where names appear. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Paul refers to this even in the conflict of the little church in Philippi when the women's ministry was in turmoil. He said, look, I ask you, dear comrade, to help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What is Jesus doing here? He is saying, look, if you want to care about souls rather than your your little tactics, you've got to remember that by the sovereign hand of God before the foundation of the world, he wrote your name And I know what happens in your mind right now. It gets all uncomfortable. Next week we're going to go right into the heart of the most difficult dynamics that Scripture has to offer. But Jesus in the next few verses teaches us that God sometimes hides the truth from those, from some people and he writes the name of the elect in the book of life. We're going right to the heart of the difficult issue because I know what our minds do. When you see Jesus say that and you know that the sovereign grace of God is being discussed, What comes to your mind is the thought that that's unfair. And that's precisely why Jesus is saying it. 
Don't you imagine that the work that God is doing in either judging cities for rejecting Him or in either pouring out His mercy upon those whose names He has written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, don't you imagine for a moment that God owes you an explanation for one single moment of His perfect purpose? You want fair? The book of life should have none of our names in it. It should have blank pages. And the mercy of God, He wrote your name. And so, when He uses you, it's so that you will step back and say, souls are at stake, it's not me. When He uses you, you'll say, I, I wasn't good enough, Lord, I thank you for using me in spite of my weakness. When He uses you, you say, Lord, I know you only used me because of your mercy and sovereign grace. You didn't use me so that I could could sort of factor in this church we, we have one job we have one job to be a mouthpiece of grace from God's word with the gospel and to live a transformed life before the Lord Jesus Christ so that it gives credibility to what comes out of our mouth when we proclaim God's word that's our job our job isn't to attract anyone our job isn't to turn away anyone. Our job isn't to get into a war room and think tactics. Our job isn't to get into some pragmatic think tank and worry about why it is that our ministries just don't seem to be touching the culture. Jesus just pulls us out of that right here and says, here's what your highest joy is. Your name is recorded in heaven by the sovereign purpose of God. And that's why it says, at that very time, Luke says, verse 21, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and began to testify of the sovereign work of God to hide the truth from whoever he chooses. Don't make God some sentimental, sappy version of us in our unbelief or our pride. God is perfect and sovereign in his purposes. And beloved, that you are saved right today, knowing now that your name is recorded in heaven by God before the foundation of the world. He wrote your name. I will save this sinner. I will redeem the sinner and make him useful for my glory for all eternity and when I save him, I'm going to leave that person on the earth until they meet my son in his kingdom and I'm going to use him for gospel interest, gospel ministry. I may use him uh, in a situation where he's tied up and persecuted and has no voice outside of prison walls or I may give him the biggest, most impacting ministry across the globe that, that has ever reached one pulpit. But none of us None of us have any of that by some delusion of grandeur. <laughs> he, he recorded our names. That's what you rejoice in. And so he says, turning to the disciples, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. Wow. Is that the way you live every day? Lord, 
I see things I don't deserve to see. I hear things I, from your word and I understand it. I don't deserve to understand it. If you could use me at all today to, to honor whatever your purpose is in hardening or softening, just, just do it, whatever. And may I disappear in the doing. I love to read church history and in the 17th century Valerius Herberger was a Polish pastor and he was beloved and he kept telling his friend Valentin Prebysh I want you to preach my funeral sermon and I have chosen the text and I have outlined it <laughs> that's nice prep the text he chose for his friend Valentin to preach on was Luke 10 20 rejoice that your names are written in heaven and Valentin arranged the details and so he had the text and he had his outline and basically Valerius outlined it this way. He wanted Priebus to present who the writer was who wrote his name in heaven, what the ink was, what the pen was, what the book was in which God wrote and what kind of script he used. <laughs> he just was analogizing off the richness of his understanding of this sovereign work of God to put his name in the book. Obviously, the, the father wrote his name in the son. The ink, of course, would have been his blood. The pen would have been the cross. The book was the book of life. And the script was the clear, unassailable truth. From one of Herberger's hymns, came this line, securely may I find me writ in your book of life. Within that bundle bind me of victors in the strife of those who dwell before you and there your glory bless. Then shall I ever adore you for all your faithfulness. Their motives needed to be examined and recalibrated. They needed their joy recalibrated so that they didn't drift off into delusions of grandeur and they understood the sovereign work of God. It would make them more useful. Souls would be at stake. No tactics, no fear, just faith, straightforward. So next time, we're going to face the sovereign grace of God and salvation. If you grew up believing something different, buckle up. It's going to be fun can be really exciting. And we're going to try to understand it best as bi the Bible describes it. And we're going to come to a place we've talked about in our church often, and that is a wall beyond which you cannot go in Scripture, but yet up to the wall you must come, and we are going to bow down to this wall, this great wall, where we worship our great God and have our joy recalibrated. Let's bow. Lord, thank you for the bit of time we've had to study this text. Thank you for recalibrating our joy. How humbling it is to know that before the world began, you fixed your heart on sinners. We can hardly even imagine our name in the divine book of life written there by you, recorded there and never to be erased. We don't know how to think that through in our finite minds with all that goes on here in gospel ministry. We know we don't deserve to have our names there. Of that we are certain. And since having the knowledge of our names being written there and since coming to you by faith and repentance, we don't even live faithfully enough to keep our name there. 
that our name is there because of you, because you recorded it there in Christ. And so it can never be removed because you wrote it in him. So we rejoice. Rejoice in this, that you've loved us with an everlasting love, even though we, we were born rejectors of the truth, suppressors of it. Thank you for mercifully opening our eyes through no power of our own so that we might be made useful for the gospel as you made these 70 useful in their time. Humble us with these things, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.